If you were to search this case online, some of the first images you'd find are of two clay busts. It's a little unusual. Normally you'd see, like, composite sketches. And there were some of those, but when an officer's college-age daughter offered to make these 3D clay models, it was so unique that they were used over and over again. And really, those two busts became synonymous with the case itself. For years, they were touted in front of the press for them to republish in newspapers and on television. But now, most of the time, they're kept in a secured closet at the Indiana State Police headquarters. They're at the bottom of a shelf beneath all of the case binders and interview tapes. First Sergeant Dalton pulled them out for me once, and they are still damp to the touch, even 40-plus years later. Back then, and even to this day, the two busts were widely referred to as the bearded man and the clean-shaven man. You'll hear it over and over and over in this case, the bearded man, the clean-shaven man. That's who everyone was looking for, who many are still looking for. But maybe we shouldn't be. Maybe that's one of those stories that people have latched onto, but just might be a very distracting rabbit hole. This is Red Ball. Soldier, keep on marching on. Head down till the work is done Waiting on that morning sun Soldier, keep on marching on When I asked Sergeant Dalton where these busts originated from, he told me a story that dates back to the first days of this investigation. The Burger Chef restaurant was located in a pretty busy area of town, right off of Crawfordsville Road, which is a main road, and the building itself is sandwiched between two other businesses. Today, if you drive by, the standalone building is still there, drive through and all, but it's vacant now. And the Dunkin' Donuts that used to be next door is now a discount tobacco. On the night of November 17th, 1978, a teenage girl was finishing up her shift at the Dunkin' Donuts and waiting for her dad to come pick her up. Her boyfriend at the time had come to meet her to squeeze in a little time together before her dad got there. The two met outside, just sitting, smoking, talking, and they walked over to the Burger Chef restaurant to catch a glimpse of the clock on the wall to see how much time they had before her dad came. They do a full lap around the restaurant looking for a clock. While they do that, Nothing is off. Lights are on, no distress. They make their way back to the Dunkin' Donuts where they finally find a clock. It says 11.30, which means it's a half hour past closing. The two decide to hang out on the side of Dunkin' Donuts to wait. And at some point, they notice two men approaching them. They seem to have come on foot from the direction of the train tracks behind the Burger Chef restaurant. They might not have remembered what they looked like, except the men walked right up to them and spoke directly at them. 
they asked the two teenagers for some form of identification. When they wouldn't or couldn't provide it, the two were told that they should get out of there. These two men told them that there had been a lot of vandalism in the area and it wasn't safe to sit out there like that. This girl and her boyfriend left without thinking too much of it, until the next couple of days, of course, when they realized what had happened. So it's this witness and her boyfriend at the time who give police the description of the bearded man and the clean-shaven man. Now, at the time, it seemed like a great lead. According to this witness, all is well at 1130. Then we know by 1215 when Brian comes by, the four employees are missing. So there is this small 45-minute window for someone to come in, take four grown people hostage, move Jane's car, and then get them off the premises. If two people were there in the middle of the night, they could have been involved, or at the very least, they might know something. So police want to talk to them. But sketches are made, the busts are created, and these images are spread far and wide. No one ever comes forward claiming to be the bearded man or the clean-shaven man. This only bolsters the opinions of some that they must have been involved, whoever they were. Without a name, people began to look at motive. Maybe the why would take them to the who. Many of the past detectives have theorized that it was a robbery gone bad. You see, there have been other robberies of fast food restaurants, burger chefs, in fact, around the same time of these murders. For 40 years, it's been the main speculation that this is how it all started. A little over $500 taken from the safe, that's like a few grand in today's money. Then maybe the robbers got recognized and they panicked. They didn't know what to do, so they loaded the kids up, drove them out to the middle of nowhere, and somehow things spiraled and ended badly. First Sergeant Dalton's predecessor, a now retired Indiana State Police officer named Stoney Van, worked that theory for years. I wasn't able to get in touch with him for an interview for my project, but back in 2017, he was interviewed by Will Higgins of Indie Star, who published an article about it on November 20th of 2017, titled, There's Still a Detective on the Burger Chef Murders. And according to that article, Van even had a specific group of guys in mind that he thought could be responsible for the robberies and these murders. Going under the theory, and Stoney worked that theory, that these were the same people who went around robbing burger chefs. And this one just went wrong because one of the employees recognized. And why they recognized is because Jane used to work at the one in Plainfield. And she had transferred to Speedway a couple of months prior. And one of these guys had connections to their job being in Plainfield. So they could have stopped by there. I asked Sergeant Dalton if it was his theory, too. It seemed to be everyone's theory, though admittedly, if you dig into this case long enough, you'll see that each detective or reporter from the past might have a different favorite suspect. But the theory was always the same. Robbery gone bad, someone got recognized. Dalton said that he couldn't tell me what his theory was yet. We'd only had a couple of meetings, and he didn't know enough about the other robberies to know if that was valid. And he didn't even have an idea who they would have recognized that could have cost them all their lives. Sure, he'd heard all the theories over the years, but he didn't want to get tied to one until he had a chance to review everything. And that was going to take some time, because I can't emphasize to you enough how much everything really is. 
When First Sergeant Dalton showed me the old clay bus in the cabinet, I also saw just how many binders there were. 20-some binders doesn't seem like a lot until you see 20-some three-inch binders brimming with paperwork. Paperwork, mind you, that isn't cataloged anywhere digitally, just 40 years of typed or handwritten notes. Did you see something in binder 17 that sounded familiar? Where had you heard that name before? Was it binder four? No, maybe binder six? There's no way for you to go back and just search. You have to go back and reread everything. Old cases come with old problems. And big cases, like the Burger Chef case, come with big new problems. That's something First Sergeant Dalton told me from day one. Big cases, big problems. And boy, were we about to find out. Just as we were getting our heads wrapped around the case and scraping the surface on theories, the 40th anniversary rolled around. This was a big one, and the state police wanted to release some new information on the 40th anniversary. So they were going to hold a press conference. This press conference is when everything changed. This is when we went from being one week in on our brand new little project to being the center of scrutiny and almost had the case compromised beyond repair. On the 40th anniversary, news agencies from all over Indianapolis and some private citizens like myself gathered in the Indiana State Police Museum to hear what this new information would be. With cameras rolling, First Sergeant Dalton revealed to all of us never-before-seen pictures of the knife used to kill Jane Freed. The public had always known that she was stabbed and that the knife had broken off inside of her. The hilt was recovered at the scene, but the handle was never located. But never before had the police commented on exactly what kind of knife it was. Now, 40 years later, police showed up to the press conference with a large, blown-up picture of what looked like a hunting knife, about four and a half inches in length. It's the kind that would likely have been kept in a sheath, First Sergeant Dalton says, and maybe even worn by someone regularly, something that someone close to that person might have remembered seeing. When asked why this piece of evidence and why now, Dalton said, this is a big knife and it's his hope that someone will remember that. Someone will remember that they knew someone who used to keep that kind of knife on them. But then one day, the knife just stopped showing up. It's a small detail and a long shot, but sometimes it's the small stuff that breaks cases. He also says it's one of the few things they have left in this case to release to the public. Over 40 years, it's hard to keep everything locked up. A lot is already known and has been shared. The police only have a handful of things left and you can't release everything or you have no case when it comes to a trial. It's a concept that I think we all get theoretically, but it can be hard to really understand when you're deeply invested in a case. I've heard people say, and heck, again, I've probably said it myself, It's been 40 years. At this point, why not release everything you have to try and solve the case? Like, what is the harm at this point? It's now or never. But First Sergeant Dalton disagrees. He thinks there's a fine line to toe. Yes, we need the public's interest and we want to keep people informed. It's why they're choosing to tell this story through a new medium like podcasting. But there are problems with releasing everything to the public. 
For starters, if everyone knows everything about the case, every detail police knew, every detail the killer knows, then how would the case ever be taken to trial? A defense attorney would have a field day with that. The details are not known, you know, because in every investigation you want to hold back certain things uh, because you don't want somebody on a false confession. So, and what Stoney, who had this case before, what Stoney kept saying is people would call in and they'd say, I know who did it, and here's what I know because I was at a party and so-and-so got drunk, and they said, and they go through the story, they would give a piece of information that Stoney knew not to be truthful. And he said, okay, all right, thank you very much. He documented on the sub, put it inside the report, never worried about it again because he knew it wasn't factual. And that's because they held certain information. So everybody knows. But more than weeding out false confessions, and the thing that I think really matters is when you release everything, people tend to start their own investigations. And on the surface, you'd think, oh, that's great. More people looking into the case. You said Dalton could only work on this in his free time anyway. What is the problem? Well, the problem is that now you have people influencing the investigation. In the past year, while I've been working with Dalton, there have been other private citizens who've latched onto this case. Some reporters, some documentarians, and some armchair detective podcasters like me. Collectively, they've been knocking on doors, talking to witnesses, getting witnesses to talk to one another, even using hypnosis to try and conjure old memories. All of this potentially harms the case. Say they do talk to a suspect, and that suspect slips up and tells this private citizen something. Okay, great, we got him. But not exactly. Even if it's recorded, that can't be submitted into evidence. It wasn't collected by someone official. Police would have to go back and re-interview that person. Even if they said the exact same thing again, were they influenced by the person interviewing them? If that person has had no law enforcement training, they could have unknowingly tampered with the testimony. It's a very messy situation. That's why in this podcast, you won't hear from witnesses or suspects or even family members. There's absolutely a place for investigative journalism, but it's not my place. My goal is to aid police in disseminating information without getting in the way of their investigation or trying to do any investigating myself. I have this tool and this platform, and I want to lend that hand to police where it can be helpful, but not everyone agrees with this. After the press conference, a handful of people got wind that I was working with the police to tell this story, and they were not happy. Freedom of Information Act requests started coming in, and people were demanding that if First Sergeant Dalton was talking to me, they should have unprecedented access to the entire case file, something only Sergeant Dalton has. This became a huge concern for us and almost stopped this project in its tracks. Dalton probably got so tired of hearing me say it, but over and over, I'd say, we can kill the project. I don't want to do anything that would hurt the case. Let's just call it off. But every time, he said no. He was committed to trying something new, come what may. Around the same time of this press conference, a vigil was held for the family and friends of Mark, Jane, Ruth, and Danny. Some wonderful and caring citizens raised money to have a memorial erected for them in Leonard Park. Four trees one for each of them, and a marble bench in the center commemorating their lives. 
Before going to the memorial, Sergeant Dalton thought it would be important for me to actually see the places we'd been talking about for the last week. The Burger Chef restaurant, the Dunkin' Donuts, where Jane's car was found. It's important to the case, he said. All of this tells us something about our suspects. We first went to the spot where Jane's car was found, right off of Leonard Park, in front of this little white house. Yeah, I think this... I think it's this white one right yeah, here? Yeah, I think it's right. Because it was facing this way, right, her car? Yes, yes. One of the neighbors had poked their head out and had heard a car door slam, and but didn't realize the vehicle was parked. They right. thought it, it, that it recognized the Vega, the neighbor had a Vega, right. and the neighbor's kid had a Vega, so... So they either would have had to come from this street or that one? This neighbor said when she heard the door slam, she was watching the Johnny Carson show. According to the wiki page for the late show starring Johnny Carson, it was on from 11.30 to 1 o'clock in the morning, which fits into our known window, but it doesn't offer much in the way of helping narrow down our timeline. Dalton keeps driving as we discuss in more detail which path the driver would have taken from the restaurant to get to this spot. This would be the way that they likely took here is the way that we're going to go. Jane's car was facing west, meaning the most likely route they would have taken would be to turn right out of the restaurant parking lot. This is also the easiest, as going left would require that you do a U-turn. Two more rights gets the car to exactly where police found it, which again is right by the park, which is right by the police station. It seems unlikely that someone was incredibly familiar with the area or parking the car there doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And not to mention, if you're not familiar with an area, you always go the way you know. Where if you're familiar with the area, you know where shortcuts and things are. But if you're not, you're going to... When you enter a movie theater, I mean, when it comes to... If everybody has to evacuate, everybody will go to the same door they came in. We drove back to the Burger Chef restaurant and where that Dunkin' Donuts used to be, and I was struck by two things. Up to this point, I'd only ever seen the scene from the street and aerial views on Google Maps. I found it hard to believe that the witnesses outside Dunkin' Donuts could see so much so clearly. And we'll turn around. And is that what the Dunkin' Donuts was? That's the Dunkin discount Donuts. tobacco? Yep. Oh my God, that's so close. So... I'm kind of shocked at how much Google Maps, like, I, I had totally different views of two things. I thought the Dunkin' Donuts was really far, and I also am surprised at how far we drove from where her car was left. There were a thousand other places to leave it in between here, like, there. And again, it goes back to why. And you ask why, and there's there's only so many reasons why you leave the car there. One, you're, you're taking to another car, or you brought it back. Which I don't think that they, I don't think they brought it back. Yeah, that's really close. So you wonder how you're going to see it. Well, that's how you're going to, that's how you're going to see it. Yeah, no one told me to go inside. You take a walk. Yeah, let's do it. We walked around the restaurant, and as we did, First Sergeant Dalton points out the railroad tracks behind the restaurant where the two men were said to have come from. And he takes me on the loop that the two witnesses would have walked looking for the clock. I keep coming back to Jane's car as we're walking, and it's probably getting old to him by now, but it's a piece of the puzzle that my mind just can't wrap around. Why take her car and not Danny's? Dalton says that one's easy. 
Danny's car was on the side of the restaurant next to the Dunkin' Donuts. There were people inside. The store was still open. There were cars in the lot. They would have been seen. Jane's car was blocked by the restaurant so they could get in it and drive away without anyone noticing. It makes sense to me, but I just keep wondering why. We know that there are four young adults working. We assume there's at least two assailants. That would be really hard to squeeze into a small Chevy Vega. And I get if you arrived on foot and needed a getaway car when you know things are moving, going fast, things went wrong, but they ditched it almost immediately. There had to be another vehicle that took them all down to Johnson County. So where did the car fit in? We had to cut our walk around the scene short. It was time to make our way over to the memorial. Family members of some of the victims came in from all over. From the back of the crowd, I just observed the small ceremony that they had, and I was amazed at the range of emotions and how each person had dealt with this tragedy in their own way. Some were still very angry. Some had found peace and ways to heal, even in the face of knowing that they may never see answers or justice. And others, many, were still just so very sad. It wasn't just family who came to the memorial, though. Friends of the victims, old Burger Chef co-workers, even detectives who'd previously worked this case showed up too. I stood near Dalton in the back as he reconnected with a retired detective who I was introduced to as Jim Kramer. Kramer worked the case from 1978 on through the 80s. He wasn't the first on the scene, but he was brought into the investigation very early on, and he was one who talked with many of the suspects and witnesses and family members. He knew what a beast this case was when it was fresh and when it was his full-time job along with a dozen others. When Dalton told him that this case was his now, Kramer said something that's been stuck in my head for over a year. He said, They gave you a full-time job and handed you a box of snakes to manage. And it was the truth. Old as it was, this case is ever-changing, constantly moving. You can't work on it in a vacuum. It's being juggled constantly with active cases, new tips, and the big problems that come with big cases. So where do you go when you've been given a full-time job and a box of snakes to manage? You go to all the men that came before. That's next time on Red Ball. This series was written, produced, and hosted by me, with production assistance from David Flowers. Thank you to First Sergeant Bill Dalton and the Indiana State Police for their participation. Our theme music is Soldier by Flurry and Tommy Prophet. Red Ball is an Audio Chuck original. So, Chuck, do you approve? Yeah.